This episode is brought to you by JLL. Get an insider view into the world of commercial real estate with JLL's podcast, Trends and Insights, the Future of Commercial Real Estate. Whether you're curious about making cities more sustainable, the evolution of office space, or AI opportunities, this podcast will help keep you a step ahead. Tune in for candid conversations with business leaders about the biggest trends impacting how we live, work, and play. Subscribe to Trends and Insights now at jll.com slash podcast. We begin tonight's battleground with a trigger warning. Those who care about the future of our country will find much of the discussion tonight disturbing. I'll be joined by Senator Jim Molan to discuss the unthinkable. What should Australia do to prepare for a war with China? The war we desperately hope won't happen. Molan's new book, Danger on Our Doorstep, should shake away any lingering complacency about the West's state of preparedness. Hello, I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre and the presenter of Battleground, your Friday night viewing on ADH-TV, the home of frank opinions, backed by the facts others prefer to ignore. First, three, three months into Anthony Albanese's term in office, we're learning once again what socialist planning looks like. It's a system that replaces the invisible hand of free markets with a dirty, fat, bureaucratic fist. It's run by a government that disdains the choices you and I make in the course of our everyday lives and presumes that it knows better than us the things that must be done. It is headed by leaders who think that communities and economies can be bent to their command as they implement their perfect solutions to problems real or imaginary. Let me give you an example. Energy Minister Chris Bowen thinks that 98% of car owners are driving the wrong kind of car. He believes he can change our car driving habits by fiddling with taxis and giving instructions to manufacturers to sell more electric cars and sell them cheaply. It's just eight years. In just eight years, he says, nine out of ten cars sold in Australia will be running on batteries, putting on Australia on track to meet its 43% emissions reduction target, the, the target he insists we must meet come rain, hail or shine. It's as if Labour's learned nothing from their blunders last time they were in government. The plan to lift education standards by injecting tens of millions of extra dollars, tens of billions, I should say, in, in that plan that failed spectacularly. The grand scheme to halve the number of homeless Australians. That scheme, too, failed. The scheme to improve computer literacy by buying a 2007 model laptop for every child in school. The only people to benefit from these programmes were the people who got to run them. And the few projects that did work, like the National Broadband Network, sort of, cost many times more and took far longer to build than they said. And far longer to build than if it had been left to the market, that's for sure. As it turns out, most of us, most of the time, manage quite nicely on a mobile broadband technology brought into our lives almost entirely by the free market. Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard's half-baked policies should serve a warning, therefore, to Boeing and his colleagues as they launch into the biggest command and control programme of them all. Yet Boeing imagines, against all experience, that governments can control all the moving parts in the market. 
And this is just the part of an even larger plan to change the climate of the planet somehow by manipulating just one of the many factors that drives the unfathomably complicated climate system. So let's step back a few hundred paces and consider the first part, how to persuade nine out of 10 Australian car buyers to leave showrooms driving a vehicle that costs more, takes an age to fill up and has a limited range and depreciates at a rate nobody yet knows. How will he persuade us that the various tasks we all want to carry out with our cars from towing and camping, fishing to dropping the kids off at kindergarten, all of those tasks are best carried out with an electric vehicle. And then how will the government ensure that there are sufficient charging stations, properly spaced to satisfy demand 24 hours a day? Because here's the kind of thing that happens if you don't. I've been waiting here the whole time. That guy took the car he before. Your car a long time. Where did you find your car? I've been waiting right there. I came around after this one opened up. Yeah, I can't yeah, I look yeah, at everybody. You're going to give yourself a stroke. Calm down. Well, the shortage of charges is creating chaos in the US, and there's no reason why it won't happen here. As the New York Times reports, electric vehicle owners are unplugging one another's cars, trading insults, and creating black market and side deals to trade spots in corporate parking lots. Charger rage, range anxiety and humongous car loans are just some of the things that will happen when the government starts believing they can run economies better than the markets. It's what happens when they forget that innovation is almost always driven by entrepreneurs rather than bureaucrats. And innovation is what we desperately need when it comes to electric cars if we want to avoid shoving the kids, their bikes, their boogie boards into the back of a Nissan Leaf and stuffing them in with fast food for hours on some godforsaken servo on the Pacific Highway while you queue for an hour of the charger. How quickly we seem to have forgotten the lessons from the great post-war experiment in economic central planning. Most of, the, of one of the most industrialised economies in the world was divided into two. Markets operated freely on one side, while on the other, apparatchiks called the shots. When the experiment ended with the collapse of the Berlin Wall in 1990, we had a Mercedes on one side and a Trabant on the other. We learnt what happens when the government gets to choose your car for you. On the one side, they were driving the Mercedes, and on the other, a two-cylinder fibreglass oil-gathering Trabant 601. Case closed. Well, don't forget that ADH TV is free to watch and you don't need one of those ugly set-top boxes or wires that mess up your living room. Just download the ADH TV app on your smart TV, which you can download from the Apple or Google Play stores. And you can also download the same app on your smartphone or if you want to keep it basic and old school, you can watch live and on demand on the old-fashioned web by going to www.adh. TV. But I highly recommend that you try the Smart TV app. Why? Because once you've installed it, it's simple to use. And two, because my next guest deserves the big screen treatment. Amanda Stoker, welcome once again to Battleground. Thank you very much for that generous welcome. Look, we've had uh, three months of Labour government now, and I sense that Albanese is going to struggle to fulfil the expectations he set in almost every portfolio energy, environment and employment, and they're just the ones beginning with E. Uh, am I being too harsh? No, I don't think that you are. Um, there were enormous promises made at the last election. The first one that comes to mind is a promise to make energy $275 a family cheaper, 
Um, and we have seen the abandonment of that promise and the reality set in that when we transition to an environment without stable baseload energy, then that only pushes prices up. Um, that kind of underperformance is being seen across all portfolio areas. Mm. And the issue that I sense is critical to our prosperity right now, apart from inflation, of course, is the, the shortage of workers. Everywhere you go, it seems, you see job vacancy signs, there are workers mm. run off their feet, there's queues forming in cafes and bars. Next week, Labor is going to have its promised job summit, but I don't sense that they really understand the gravity of this or have much in the way of answers. What do you think? The job summit has always troubled me. It proceeds from the wrong footing. Um, and that is to say that if we get everyone in the room and talk about how they want higher wages, then that will just happen. And you and I know that that's actually starting from the wrong end of the story. The way to get higher wages is to provide that there is demand in the market and competition for skilled employees. The problem we face at the moment is actually at the other end of the market. There aren't enough people to do all the jobs that are available, and that is actually crushing the businesses involved so that they can't be profitable. We can't really talk about higher wages until we resolve the problem of making businesses viable by getting the people they need to do the jobs. That's the real issue. And in the coverage we've seen in the last few days, um, Tony Burke and others have said, oh, well, we don't want to talk about migration and we're not really making this about skills. It's all about jobs and wages. You don't get jobs and wages unless you talk about where we get people from and how we get them skilled to be able to do the jobs that need to get done. Then you have profit and profitable businesses and then they can pay people more. <laughs> Absolutely right. Look, there are three points in Tony Burke's plan to increase wages, and all of them are absolutely terrible. First, he wants to use regulation to force wages higher by putting the Fair Work Commission onto the case. Second, he wants to change the IR system to give unions greater bargaining power. And third, he wants to put a stop to the heinous crime he calls wage theft. Look, Amanda, the idea that government can somehow force employers to raise wages seems a fantasy to me. And in any case, yeah, I mean, what do you think? It's productivity, isn't it, that's the real problem here? Look, productivity is always at the core of what's necessary to drive the wages of existing employees up. Um, unions have been really resistant to any kind of measure that might have helped to drive productivity. All throughout our efforts during the last government, Labor stood in the way of any industrial relations reform that would have helped with that productivity. And now they're signalling they want to additionally unionise and provide greater opportunities for those productivity resistant unions to have more influence and more ability to exercise demands effectively despite that resistance to the two-way street that is productivity for increased wages. It's a recipe for disaster. The only places you can think of where the centralised government setting of wage rates works, or maybe maybe history shows us it doesn't work at all, um, are in, in the communist states. And it just is a matter of time before those become failed states. Mm, well, of course it can't work. And, and the other strange idea just behind Labor's thinking is they seem to think that the solution to higher prices is higher wages. 
Now, Amanda, I doubt if you remember very clearly the wage spirals that occurred in earlier periods of inflation, but I'm sure you've read the textbooks on this. What do, what do you think? It's just common sense, isn't it? Um, if you want to pay the, um, the worker more to produce the thing that gets sold in the shop, the thing becomes more expensive and then everybody needs pay rises to pay for the more expensive thing. <laughs> you can't <laughs> operate this way. It doesn't make sense. Um, and unless they confront the reality that says starting this discussion at the end um, of the wage packet of working people, um, while very important in the day-to-day -day lives of everyone, is actually putting the cart before the horse. And it means that you are in this spiral that will just make everything continue to get more expensive. That's not a solution for inflation. It's a recipe for more of it. It's got to end in tears, isn't it? Definitely. But I, I, I think the problem with... Tony Burke, he seems to be fixated on one particular part of the job market, the unionised sector, which is what it's largely the, the public sector. So we, the taxpayers, have to pay that one. Or the large industries, mm -hmm. the large industries like uh, like mining, uh, shipping and so forth, uh, where, mm -hmm. where, you know, big unions do have big power and, and they're dealing with big corporations. Very different, though, isn't it? And that really does... Yeah, go on. Sorry. It really does reflect, though, in um, the ways that they approach policy across the board. Because they all come out of unions from the public sector or from those big businesses, um, all their policy is driven around big companies with big resources or big government departments for whom you can throw around terms like wage theft and it might be meaningful. But the reality of most of the cases where we've seen underpayment of wages, and that is serious, those cases have involved small businesses who have been weighed down under the burden of complexity in the administration of their business. They've been trying to do the right thing and either got bad advice or um, in, ineffectively executed their attempt to honestly fulfil their obligations. And yet these people are being called criminals by those in labour. You can't get on top of these economic problems unless you understand that Small businesses really matter, that their contribution is huge, and you can't try and shut them all down just because they're not unionised. It's a very different picture, isn't it, if you're running a small business? I mean, uh, take Bruce, for example, who runs the Larrikin Hotel up there in Bo Bowen in Queensland. Hi, Bruce. I was up there recently. Spot. Lovely spot. spot, lovely hotel. <laughs> the Larrikin Hotel, let's just repeat that. Look, Bruce was telling me, uh, you know, the, the bar wasn't terribly full that night. And the reason was he can't find a chef. There's just not enough workers there. Now, if, he's, if his quest to find that essential worker is going to be also hamstrung by the fact there's all sorts of extra wage pressures on him, plus all the extra paperwork they seem to want to throw at you, I mean, you might as well give the game away, right? I mean, it just seems to me that Labor needs to get a grasp pretty quickly of what it's like at that end of the economy. And they need to understand how important um, for businesses, particularly smaller businesses in regional towns and in coastal communities, um, or bush communities too, it is to have travellers and um, you know young people who are prepared to take those kinds of jobs as part of a bit of a working holiday. Um, with the message that's been sent internationally through the COVID period about Australia being closed in something of a draconian nanny state, it's become very hard to get the person to work the bar in Birdsville as it has been to get somebody to wash the dishes 
in Bowen. Yeah. Now, fortunately, there is some common sense, it seems, on the Labor side. I see that uh, competition, minister, competition Minister Andrew Lee uh, has a better grasp of the relationship between productivity and wages than uh, some of his colleagues. In a speech this week, Lee said, quote, slower productivity means slower real growth in wages and less buying power for households. That's it in a nutshell, right? It sure is. Um, somebody reshuffle the, the deck chairs in Labor to give um, that guy a chance to do his thing uh, more than, say, Mr Burke and Mr Bowen and Mr Albanese. And, and Lee also made some prescient observations about business startups, which um, traditionally have been a real driver for productivity in this, this, this country because they increase competition and they also tend to introduce innovation. They tend to find smarter ways to do things. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as Lee points out, the rate of growth in new businesses is slowing. Um, and as a, as a Liberal, uh, Amanda, I'm sure like me, a Liberal who believes in encouraging people to be enterprising, to take a risk, to have a go, because that's what drives prosperity, it's something we must be worried about, I would think. It is something to worry about. And it's interesting that those numbers have quite rapidly changed. Um, in, the, in recent times. We had seen, even through that COVID period, um, some pretty impressive numbers, particularly around people starting businesses from home um, and, and women in that mumpreneur space. So it really is important that we keep driving opportunity for people to back themselves in, in, in entrepreneurship and in self-employment and in small business. It's where so many people cut their teeth and it's where all of the innovations that become big businesses start. And we really need to do everything we can in a policy sense to back them in. Yeah, yeah, I like that word, mumpreneur. I guess I see you as a mumpreneur now, uh, Amanda. Let's talk about that particular group. I, I, I think it's clear that the way the, the coalition performed when it came particularly to younger women, um, which wasn't terribly flash, right? You'd know that. Clearly, we have to connect with these people, and, and that seems to me the kind of policy area in which we can connect with them to encourage and find ways in which they can uh, become, you know, engaged and entrepreneurial and do all those things. Is that something we need to do a look at? Look, I think young women and um, women who are parents, they all have the same sorts of aspirations as, as the rest of us. They want to um, pursue things that interest them. They want to build something that's lasting. They want to provide for their families and they want to be able to enjoy the fruit of that effort. And um, all of those things can be achieved through business. Um, and it's really empowering, I think, um, and de demonstrative of our faith in the talents of women if we're prepared to say, uh, we know you can do this and we also know that you're more able to live the kind of life many of you want to have that's got more balance with family and the like if you can start your own gig and often do it from home. Um, being able to provide that support is, I think, a great way of showing that we understand the many and varied kinds of lives that Australians lead, including that that is often a challenge for people who are parents. It's true for blokes too, but it's particularly an issue for women. Good thoughts there, Amanda. Thank you for joining me once again, and let's catch up again next week. Thanks, Nick. That was former Senator Amanda Stoker, who's now a distinguished fellow at the Menzies Research Centre.
Australia's approach to dealing with the People's Republic of China can be summed up in an eight-word aphorism. Hope for the best, prepare for the worst. We've become pretty good at hoping, the hoping part since the normalisation of relations under Gough Whitlam in December 1972. But we've done uh, precious little preparing, it seems, as we grew rich off the back of China's economic expansion and convinced ourselves against the evidence that the Chinese Communist Party would come good one day. Last year, I took a call from Senator Jim Molan asking for my feedback on an extending, extended essay he had written with a disturbing message. Before he went into politics, Molan was among the most highly experienced, highly regarded military commanders in the country. His essay had been written in the hope of alerting Australians to the rising danger of Chinese aggression and the nation's poor state of preparedness. The power of Jim Molan's narrative was not just in the words, but in the, his authority, the authority he earned during his 40 years as a soldier, including a year as chief of operations for coalition forces in Iraq. The thoughts that were forming in that essay have now been published as a book, Danger on Our Doorstep, Could Australia Go to War with China? Tony Abbott says this book should be compulsory reading for everyone concerned for our country's future. I go further. I say that danger on our doorstep should be compulsory reading for everyone, because if you're not concerned with our country's future, you should be. Senator Molan joins me now from country New South Wales. Jim, welcome to this particular battleground. Uh, first, uh, can I draw from your combat experience and ask for your assessment of the latest live fire exercises by the People's Liberation Army, which occurred within the exclusive economic zones of both Taiwan and Japan. Are Chinese Communist leaders trying to tell, tell us something? And, and if so, what is it? Uh, Nick, good afternoon. Uh, uh, and it's, it's great to be here on your battleground. It's our battleground, and you're quite right. It's everyone's battleground because it takes a nation to defend a nation. Uh, but in relation to the demonstration of power that we saw in relation to uh, Taiwan and Nancy Pelosi's visit, uh, where the People's Republic of China uh, conducted a, a range of activities. That, that is, they flew aircraft across the midline of the air defence identification zone. They fired missiles uh, uh, across the centre of Taiwan and, and five of them landed within the economic zone of Japan. Plus, they fired around the edges and placed their their naval forces in positions that they would place them if they intended to, to, to uh, conduct uh, a, a, a blockade of Taiwan. Uh, as to what their aim was, I think that they were just making noise. Uh, there is nothing that they could really achieve from it. It's a process, uh, a slow process of intimidation, I guess. Uh, but what, what's really sad about it is that it only takes one of those missiles to go bad uh, and to fall in a populated area, and we've got a much more complicated uh, uh, situation on our hand. So, no, I don't think it had any great strategic uh, ideas behind it, but it did increase the level of tension and the danger of conducting such an irresponsible activity. Well, look, if there was a Chinese attack on Taiwan, I feel our consciences at least would compel us to come in on the side of the Taiwanese. Look, you've got a pretty thorough knowledge of what's stored in the nation's kit locker. Would you say, do we have anything that would be useful if we were defending Taiwan? We don't have much 
that we could get to Taiwan or get to the vicinity of Taiwan, to Japan or South Korea or Guam, that would be of any particular use to the United States. Uh, if the United States was coming in to defend the, the, uh, the, the island of Taiwan. Uh, for example, we could send certain of our air warfare destroyers, a very good dis uh, destroyer uh, uh, fleet up there, only three ships, unfortunately, probably one or two would be available to go up there. We, there's no point in sending troops in any, uh, in any shape to the area. This is going to be a maritime and a, a naval and an air battle. We could send some of our aircraft up there, but you'd have to ask yourself, why would the Chinese permit uh, the, the, the Western uh, liberal democracies to assemble from as far away as Australia or Europe extra forces in the vicinity of Taiwan, which complicates Taiwan's, uh, complicates China's uh, a formula for actually defeating Taiwan. Why? Why would, uh, unlike Russia in in Ukraine, why would why would China give a message to the entire world so the Americans can protect their air and maritime fleets, so that we can deploy forces into the vicinity, so that the Europeans can get through the the. Uh, uh, the Suez Canal or, or the Americans can bring ships through the Panama Canal. Uh, all of this doesn't make sense. That's why in the book that I wrote, I say this dozen, there's a dozen different ways this war might start, but it seems to me the most logical way it would start would be with a surprise attack. Look, I think one of the things you do in this book superbly is to separate fact from fiction. Um, if we were to judge US capability from the movie Top Gun Maverick, which I thought was a terrific movie, we think they're doing pretty well, right? Uh, the US does have some outstanding, high, highly sophisticated fighter aircraft that were deployed to great effect in Afghanistan. Uh, the, the F-18s in Top Gun Maverick, are they, are they an advance on the F-14s in the original 1986 movie? Yet, I suspect it would be a very different story if Tam, Tom Hanks and his team had to face air-to-air uh, -air missile capability in China, right? Oh, quite correct. Uh, a totally different story. And the one thing that changes this is that that fleet of aircraft, the F-15s, F-14s and F-15s, uh, as they call them, the teen fighters, the F-22 and the F-35, were all designed for a war in, uh, in Europe against Russia. Now, the distances that you've got to deploy those aircraft within Russia are much shorter. The Pacific Island is still an enormous area. And when you when you look at it, if you hold, if, if in order to protect these fighter jets from a missile attack, you held them back maybe in, in Hawaii or on the west coast of the United States, in, in some ways out of range of most of the missiles that China has, then to redeploy them into the area uh, you've got to use tanker after tanker after tanker after tanker. Not just one tanker, but many tankers. The distances are quite astounding. So what becomes the prize area? What, what does become the prize, the prize target? Are the tanker aircraft, the hundreds of tanker aircraft that America must maintain and must protect, plus, of course, the bases from which they attack. So not only do you deploy those forces, from Europe or, or from other parts of Asia or from Australia or from 
uh, uh, Hawaii or from the west coast of the United States. But then when you they, they land at an air base somewhere, which would be smothered in missiles, so there won't be any fuel sitting on the ground there. There won't be any 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 uh, uh, maintainers sitting there waiting for their beautiful aircraft to come in. So suppose you were somehow to get them through that particular problem of no aircraft and no bases, and you launched an attack against China, then then you, you're going to find yourself uh, very much needing even more tankers to 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 uh, uh, enable those aircraft to reach from Guam or from uh, other other of some of the other bases into into uh, the targets that you want to attack in uh, in China. And as I said before, you keep asking yourself, why would China allow that to occur when with a very simple surprise attack, they can avoid all that and just about guarantee themselves a win? I think it's important that we, we take viewers through the comparative combat advantages in some detail so that the gravity of your message in your book might sink in. Missile technology, Jim. You introduce us to the Dongfeng 21D, which is an anti-ship ballistic missile, which, if we believe what's written on the box, seems could pretty much wipe out the US Navy carrier fleet. Uh, it's said to have an accuracy of 20 metres over thousands of kilometres. Even if the target is moving, it can be fired above the Earth's atmosphere from the Chinese mainland and travel many times the speed of sound and its flight path can be corrected mid-course. Uh, whatever else this might be, it's not a repeat of the Battle of Midway, is it? Oh, no, it's, it's certainly not. And neither is it a repeat of 1944's D-Day battles where thousands of ships set off over a very short 20-kilometre English Channel. This is a 180-kilometre channel, and then on the other side of the channel, you've got many hundreds of kilometres, thousands of kilometres to the first and the second island chain. Uh, the Dongfeng 21 uh, is, could quite easily be propaganda. What we have discovered is that the Chinese have built a replica target in their western deserts against which they practice firing the DF-21 missile at it. They've also fired one missile that we are aware of which has landed in between the first and the second island chain. And the first and the second island chain are where the American fleet has got to move into if it's going to use its missiles to protect Taiwan. So, yes, it might be a snow job on us, Nick, uh, it, but then again, it might be true. And certainly the levels of accuracy that they have been achieving with other missiles uh, mean that they only need to fire, you know, three, four, five, six or seven missiles into an airbase to take out all the fuel on an airbase, to take out all the maintenance facilities and the headquarters. A lot of the accuracy of their missile force is due to the fact that they can achieve a mid-course correction hmm. uh, because they have not just the ability to assess where that aircraft carrier is. Is it turning left? Is it turning right? How far was it 10 seconds ago from the position that it's moved in that last 10 seconds? and then pass that information down to the DF-21 missile in flight. And it does that from, from its resources in outer space. So again, I ask, uh, why would the Chinese, by giving notice that they're going to use this incredible capability, the biggest rocket force in the world, why would they give notice that they're going to use it when they could use a surprise attack? 
And part of that surprise attack would be to destroy similar capabilities, mid-course correction, and similar capabilities to, uh, to American missiles and Western liberal democracies' space resources. And in my view, this surprise attack will begin in space, then move into undersea cables, uh, it will then move into, into uh, uh, the American bases in Japan, South Korea and Guam and Diego Garcia and maybe Darwin in the future. Uh, and then it will move, having, having wiped out the Americans' ability to reinforce, then it will move into a very advanced form of intimidation around diplomacy. <laughs> and that's going to be even more interesting than the first attack because the first attack, Nick, would take only a couple of hours. Yeah, when you mentioned undersea cables, it's not just our sea lanes and skies we've got to protect. There's a whole cyberspace now, digital communications in general. And uh, you point out here we rely heavily on tens of thousands of submarine cables that crisscross our oceans and connect Australia to the rest of the world. How vulnerable are these to Chinese attack? Oh, they are totally and absolutely vulnerable. Both sides, the Americans and the Chinese, have built specialist submarines whose one function it is is to, is to wreck these cables or to reroute them. And, uh, 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 and there are certainly stories around the place that certain of these cables in the world have been rerouted through, through Beijing. I don't know how true those stories are, but the, 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 these submarines exist. They are designed to wreck these cables. 90% of our military data goes through undersea cables. It doesn't whip up to space and get bounced back by a satellite. It goes through uh, 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 cyber protected. It goes through these cables. Smash these cables and you've changed our ability to pass the information that we get from outer space or the information that we want to send to outer space to then send down to our submarines and our ships and our planes. So to sum up the implications of what you said, Jim, you write the advantages that the US has enjoyed for many years through its advanced technology and industry no longer exists. You go on to say that China has, the, quote, the ability to spring a devastating attack on US regional bases that would remove US power from the Western Pacific and leave China free to resolve the Taiwan issue in its own time without any interference. Leave China free to, to do its own thing in its own time with no interference. What scares me most about that sentence, Jim, is that the, you don't qualify it with any ifs, buts or maybes. No, and I think this, and I spend a lot of time in a couple of chapters uh, defending this point because this is a key point. This is the first time that uh, the Western liberal democracies, Europe, the US, Australia, have faced an adversary which is our superior force in relation to both industry and technology. Uh, even during the Cold War, Russia was certainly the equivalent, if not, if not the greater power, in relation to its industrial capacity to produce tanks and armoured vehicles and aircraft, but its technology was never up to the Western technology and we could space wars them out of existence just about. Well, uh, that's not the case with China. Uh, every indication is, and most of these indications come from open sources in the United States, every indication is that both their industry and their technology is superior to ours in the West. So not only are they numerically superior, 
they are now at a stage where the technology that they have on these ships and planes and missiles is superior to ours. And uh, uh, this is, as I said before, this is something we have never faced before and we better get a move on. We get report after report after report from American, uh, and not just anyone in America, from deputy commanders of American armed forces who use the rather crude saying that in their war games, the Chinese hand them their ass. Uh, they are thoroughly beaten uh, by the Chinese in the war games that they conduct. And there's a very big series of war games being run at this very moment. And I certainly hope that the Americans are prepared to release the results because they're furiously looking for a way to fight and to win in China's front yard. My fear is that there is no way to do this. The physical presence of China and Taiwan where they exist means, means that it's just, it's, you know, we, we should not be trying to fight in that area. Now, that's bad news for the Taiwanese, for sure. It's, it's absolutely immoral. If we wanted to fight in that area, then we've got to, we've got to figure out some other way of fighting. Uh, and in my view, the only way to do it is to increase both our technological capability and our industrial capability, and to, in Australia's case, to spend vast amounts of money. We're behind the eight ball, though, aren't we, Jim? I mean, I, it's almost 30 years, best part of 30 years since I, I was working as a foreign correspondent in Hong Kong. And I wrote then about China's militarisation of the Spratly Islands, it's building atolls there for military use. I wrote then about the evidence that they were accumulating a, a blue water navy. What has it taken us so long to wake up to this and realise that China isn't messing here, that it, that it really is challenging Western supremacy in the Pacific? Well, I think it's taken us so long because even China itself, from what I can read, even China itself has only just realised that it can now reach into low Earth orbit uh, and to, uh, to other parts of space. It can reach out into low Earth orbit and, and be destructive to our capabilities in space. It only now realises that suddenly, yes, we can touch space, we can touch the undersea, we can hit all these bases around the place, we can force the Americans out of the sec first and second island chain, their naval forces. Uh, all of a sudden, in the last one or two years, the Chinese have realised the capabilities that they have created for themselves. We've seen their aggression in those areas that you mentioned before, the East and the South China Seas, uh, you know, they're not mucking around. They've just taken them and they don't care what the West does. Jim, uh, your book is an uncomfortable one to read, uh, but it, it, it is, com I'm glad you've written it uh, and it is compelling reading, uh, I must say that. We, it is your job as a former military commander, as a military commander to draw our attention to the worst that can happen, which you graphically do in danger on our doorstep. But please, can we focus now on the best case scenario, if you like, the way we'd like to see this tension between the West and China resolved. You write, war is not inevitable, but whether it occurs or not, it is likely to depend on the strength and resolve of the US and its allies, including Australia. The question of likelihood must not be dismissed by the false hope that war is so appalling that it could never occur, or the probability that it's small, it's small enough to be ignored. We need a strategy based on the real world, not on the hope for the world it is. What would that strategy look like? 
Uh, Nick, this is, the, this is probably the hardest question that we would consider because we, we must rely on uh, deterrence uh, and if deterrence fails, we must be able to win. Now, how we do that, given the fact that we have given China such a start, uh, I honestly don't know the answer to that question. We have we we, we are in a you know a, apart from our fact of being able to go back ten years and start again, uh, we are in big trouble. And if China decides to move, then in fact it can move. Uh, so I don't have an answer to that question. Uh, but I, what I do know is that the defence strategic review that the government is about to start uh, working on uh, is going to be is going to take far too long. It only considers defence; it doesn't consider the resilience of the whole nation, and therefore, uh, I think it's going to be totally and absolutely irrelevant. So uh, uh, I, I can't answer that, Nick. I, maybe there's another book in that somewhere. I may have to have another look at that issue. Yeah. Well, let's finish, Jim, by... Let's, if Labor's review is going to be so hopeless, let's, let's, let's do a quick review of our own. And, and he, here's, here's my uh, quick review of our strategic position. The ANDIS agreement, uh, which we've relied on, and the assumption that the US will be able to come to our aid faced with hostility in our region is something that has changed. We, we, need, we, we need to avoid complacency over that. Uh, the US doesn't necessarily even have the capability to, ha to help us, let alone the will. So we need to move much more towards a strategy, and you write about this in your book, a strategy closer to that of Israel. What would that strategy look like? That strategy would look like the expenditure of probably 6 to 8% of GDP to start spending very, very fast not entice ourselves uh, about trying to build ships. If we want missiles, let's not build ships to get 48 missiles rather than 35 missiles. Let's buy missiles by the dozen and stick them where they're supposed to be. Let's get out there and, and defend ourselves and give ourselves the ability, at the same time, give ourselves the ability to reach out and to hurt an enemy. Uh, that's, and that's in the first instance. That's the first thing we should do. We should not stop the things that the coalition government started to do. We need also to start uh, building a reserve military because it, uh, reserve army, navy and air force. At some stage, we are going to need that. Uh, and, of course, we've got to build resilience within the country. But, Nick, the first thing we should do, and I'll have to make this the last point, the first thing we, we must do is to build, uh, is to conduct a comprehensive analysis of the overall uh, national strategy as to how we might do this. Everyone will have their one thing that they can do, and that's a waste of time. We need to start with the overall strategy and then start building on that strategy as we can afford the money to build on that strategy. Jim, let's just put the, your book on the screen again. Danger on our doorstep. It, it's published by HarperCollins, available in all good bookstores or online. Very important book, in my view. Thank you for writing it. And uh, thank you for your presence in the Senate. Good to see you in, in good health again, Jim. And we'll talk to you again soon on this vital question to our nation's future. Uh, Nick, thank you very much. And it's quite right. We should read this book widely and get rid of the complacency that we all have. Nick, thank you very much, and I thank the Menzies Research Centre. Thank you, Jim. Well, diversity and inclusion, they're our thing at ADH-TV. Uh, diversity of opinion, we love to hear from you, whatever your views, 
and we'll try and include your emails on the show. Just shoot me an email at nickcater at adh.tv. Nickcater at adh.tv. First, we hear from Monica. It's time to move on from the endless hounding of Morrison. We are facing an energy and economic crisis in Australia that requires good government, not ad nauseum witch hunts. Raymond says farms converted in windmills covered, sorry, farms covered in windmills look absolutely alarming, ugly and ominous. The Greens and Labor were once hugging trees, but now they're hugging windmills. Unfortunately for us, these renewables are not going to cut it. Well said. Raymond, perhaps we should start building some uh, renewable plants in places like the eastern suburbs of Sydney, Teal Territory, see if they like that. Ellen says, as, ordinary New Zealand, as an ordinary New Zealand citizen, I'm so proud of the progress we've made in my lifetime addressing racism, sexism, environment degradation, global warming, health, poverty, taxes and education. For those not happy, please leave and leave the rest of us to enjoy this beautiful country. I suppose that must be an answer to Oliver Hartwich, who I interviewed recently. Ellen, thank you very much for that comment. Tony says, it's ironic that taxpayers are forced to support all these vocal minority groups that inevitably have the common goal of destroying our society. Beware the unrelenting march of the left. They aim to conquer by spreading division. And Michael writes, a COVID Royal Commission would be like the politicians responsible for putting themselves and the health service advice they relied on in the dock to justify the draconian emergency responses they ruthlessly implemented. They're never going to do that, or at least not while the actual people who did it are still in office. I'm afraid that's probably correct. Well, if you've got any comments to share with us, good, bad or indifference, please shoot me an email at nickcater at adh.tv. Just time to thank my producer, Amy Teekle, and uh, all the crew here at ADH-TV. And thank you for watching. See you all again next week.